Well, good morning to y'all. Well, I've decided to um, use First Timothy as a book study for the next while when I bring the messages. Um, probably go on through Second Timothy as well. And I uh, thought I'd say a little bit about why I decided that. Um, one reason was that for about a year and a half at least, um, I spoke out of Genesis, so felt it was time for a New Testament study. And um, why Timothy? And as we were reading through the Bible this past year, by the way, uh, several, a few of you responded that you had gotten through the Bible. I, I hope there was more than what responded on email, but uh, we were trying to read through the Bible this past year. And uh, when we when I got to Timothy, I I kind of felt drawn to Timothy for uh, for several reasons. Most of Paul's letters were to churches, you know, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, all to churches. Timothy is a letter to one individual, and uh, Philemon would be another one. But uh, just think about that Paul, with all his leadership responsibilities with all these churches, would make an effort to write to an individual. And that just, that feels special. There must have been a close relationship between Paul and Timothy. Quite a few times Paul calls Timothy his son, his son in the faith. Another reason I felt drawn to Timothy was that Timothy was young. It seems like, and we don't know how young. Um, but sincere young people fascinate me. There is so much potential, so much promise in the young. I just finished reading uh, again. I'm, I read it several times. The book "Lords of the Earth" by Don Richardson. Um, an incredibly moving story, but it, it was the young men that first stood up and uh, said, we're going to listen to what, what these people have to say, whether or not the older generation threatened them. And uh, actually, some of them later lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. I don't know what Timothy looked like. I don't know if he was tall and handsome. I, I don't know if he had a cool car or a cool haircut or was a good athlete whether he was popular with the girls. I do know he didn't have a cool car. We do know that. <clears throat> but I do know that he was a real man. And I want to issue a special challenge to the young men this morning. Strive to be a real man. Uh, Derek's got another birthday closer to being a real man. <clears throat> um, and don't don't look for the world's definition of, of what a real man is. It's uh, a lot of those things are not true. I uh, I came across the clip just a, maybe last night. Actually, I think it was something that Angela put on Facebook. Uh, Paul Washer. Some of you listen to Paul Washer. He said his wife has a saying, and she says if a man-eating lion got loose in America, he'd starve to death because there's not enough real men around to, uh, you know, make a meal. Well, hopefully, 
Let it be true that if a man-eating lion got loose in Gladys, Virginia, he'd find good hunting among the men. And here's a lesson for us older ones when we think of the relationship with Paul and Timothy. Be an encouragement to the young. That's what Paul was doing for Timothy. And it doesn't even have to be that much. Um, I remember my dad, he told me this more than once. My, my dad, when he was young, he was small and he was shy and he was an insecure young man. And um, But he, he told about how old Sam Yoder in Stuart Strath, Sam Yoder would, be, uh, would have been Eric Hershberger's grandfather his mother's father. Sam Yoder would always shake his, made a, made a special point to shake his hand every Sunday after church. And he wasn't just a, you know, uh, just a shake and gone. He would say, well, Eli, how are you doing? And I'm not sure if he said much more than that. But my dad said it made a difference in his life. Somebody noticed him and somebody cared. Like I already said, we, we see that Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. And uh, I hadn't noticed this before, but Paul lists Timothy as co-sender in six of his letters. Um, if, you, if you just, if you glance through, like starting at it, Second uh, Corinthians starts out that way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And, and it's the same thing. He says the same thing in Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. I think we could say that Timothy was Paul's... I was going to look this word up to make sure I was using it right. Is it right to say protege? Would it mean... Uh, wouldn't it mean... You know, like your special, uh, somebody you took interest in and trained and grew up to be what you wanted them to be. I think that's what Timothy was to, um, to Paul. And you've heard me draw this, this one more parallel here. One more thing about, uh, being drawn to Timothy. I, I've said this before. Timothy was young. And our church is young. And uh, Paul tells Timothy to conduct himself in a way that no one looks down on or disregards him because he's young. And I think we could maybe take that on as a church. May we as a church conduct ourselves in a way that no one has, um, that no one can truthfully, you know, look down on us or or be discouraged or, um, or despise us because we're really living uh, the gospel. Another thing about Timothy that draws me to him, something that was a little unusual, it's more than just that he was young. You know, most of the early church leaders were full-blood Jewish stock, not Timothy. 
Uh, if you wanted to, you could call Timothy a half-breed. He was half-Gentile. His mother was Jewish, and his father was a Greek. And uh, I'm drawn to people that have different stories than uh, what we would say the norm, the, the bigger group. And uh, <clears throat> I like that about covenant. We have some different stories here. We have, we have some different races. We have some different nationalities. We have adoption. We have different physical and mental things we're dealing with. And there's power in a story where a person is yielded to God, whatever their background, whatever their history, whatever their circumstances. So that's why I felt drawn to Timothy. So by all means, we'll begin to read. And um, this kind of message is, is sort of different than a lot of times what I would do. I kind of like a message where you have one theme and you keep going back to that theme and just hammering it home, you know, point after point. And when you get through, uh, you know, there should be no mistaking what the point, what the main point was. But in this type of uh, a message, we're looking at a chapter and there might be half a dozen topics here that we're looking at. So. Um, you know, we can't spend a whole, a whole th- uh, theme on each one of those, but we'll be looking at it, them in uh, shorter periods of time. <clears throat> and I think what we'll do, instead of reading the whole, the whole chapter at once, we'll read several verses, and then we'll talk about them, and then we'll read some more, and so on like that. So let's read uh, verse 1 and 2. For starters, in First Timothy, and I'm reading out of the New American Standard, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, Paul calls himself an apostle, first of all. He wasn't one of the twelve. He says he was uh, later in another place in Scripture. He says he was like an apostle. I forget how he had it worded. Um, Out of, seemed like it had due time in the phrase. I I forgot to look that up. But we know how he was uh, struck down on the the Damascus Road. And he heard a voice. And, and the voice was calling him to be an apostle. And uh, he says, according to the commandment, um, I guess he could have refused, but uh, uh, God was dealing a really strong call to Paul there on the Damascus Road. According to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, And I wanted to say a little bit about that word, hope. That's quite a stronger word there than, um, you know, yesterday I would have said, I hope the sun comes out soon. Lola and I discussed this by text yesterday. Um, And, 
yes, I mean, uh, the forecast was that the sun would come out. So, but, you know, sometimes we say we hope something and it's, it's just kind of a, uh, a wishful thinking that we have. But this hope, I looked it up in the Greek and it, it's, it said it means our expectation. It's what we actually expect to happen. And, um, so, you know, the, the old saying is don't put your eggs in one basket, but as Christians, we do that. Christ Jesus is our one and only hope. And we put all our eggs in that basket and we, um, we're banking on that that's true. <clears throat> so that's our, that's the type of hope we have. Now this, these first two verses are what are called Paul's salutations, his greetings. He has them in every one of his epistles, if you look back through every last one. And he always says grace and peace. And um, in this one, he adds mercy in the list. And maybe that's because in just a little while, Paul is going to tell us how much mercy uh, God needed to have with him. But grace... It's such a beautiful word. I'm not sure I didn't look back how long ago. Not so long ago, I had a message on grace. And I gave a definition of grace that went like this. Grace is the unmerited divine assistance to humans for regeneration, sanctification, and ongoing endurance. Uh, Grace is something that we really... For regeneration and sanctification, it's our, it's our only hope. And I guess we could try to endure life on our own, but, um, it's a very difficult thing. And if we're given grace for that, that makes a huge difference. <clears throat> I, um, I didn't write this down, but I'm pretty sure the, the Greek word for grace is charis. And uh, I thought that would, that, would, that would make a nice girl's name. If any of you are getting ready to have a baby, baby girl, um, you know, like Cherish Martin, wouldn't that have a nice sound to it? Uh, just remind us of grace. I have a first cousin that's name is Grace. <laughs> But there's something else important that we can learn from Paul's salutation. And we're going to look at the little word and in this salutation. Now, what can we learn from the little word and? Did you know that we can uh, get some important doctrine from the word and? Let's read verse 2 again. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you seem to see here? In the simple simple way of understanding what's being said, it would seem to be making a distinction between the Father and the Son. And I think, as a general rule, the, the simple look at scripture is probably your best look. You know, if you make something too complicated, you may be missing the actual truth. So here's the problem. We say we believe in the Trinity, one God in three persons. We sing about the Trinity often. Um, 
Number 28 in the church hymnal. Holy, holy Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So there's some groups that don't believe in the Trinity. Does this matter? After all, who among us can begin to fathom and understand God? Couldn't we just dismiss it and say, this is just another way of trying to understand a God that we can't comprehend? Well, I think it matters quite a great deal. I think any time we deviate from the simple understanding of Scripture, we're on dangerous ground. And some of these groups say the Trinity is illogical. Well, I would say counter with, can it be any more illogical than the incarnation of God becoming human flesh? That sounds fairly illogical. Being born of a virgin? Illogical. Some of these things we just have to believe. And uh, there's some quite some illogical things about not believing in the Trinity as well. The, the Jehovah's Witnesses dismiss the deity of Jesus, therefore they can't recognize a Trinity because they don't feel like Jesus is part of uh, divinity. And other groups recognize Jesus as divine, but believe Jesus and God the Father, that Jesus is God the Father as well. And they use, they look at these salutations and they say the word and has been translated wrong. Uh, the word and comes from the Greek word kai. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. K-A-I. And it's true that the, the, the Greek word kai can be translated and or it can be translated even. So if we would read this verse, reread this verse again and put even in there, we would say, God our Savior, even Christ Jesus. So you see what that does? It makes uh, God the Father and Christ Jesus the same one. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, even Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what, you see what that does. <clears throat> now, um, the vast majority of the time, in, in our English translations, and Kai is translated as and. And uh, I like to look up verses on, uh, there's a website called Bible Hub, and uh, you put a verse in there, and it gives you 32 translations of that, of that verse. And uh, so I put 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 1, 2 in there. And all 32 translations translate the same way, and, which differentiates between God the Father and God the Son. And there are many other scriptures that support this idea as well. If you read um, John 17, is a is a great portion to read. And it's the back and forth between God the Father and God the Son. And it seems totally illogical uh, to imagine <clears throat> how this could happen um, with God the Father and God the Son being the same person. Or if you think of at Jesus' bapti baptism, 
there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son um, in whom I'm well pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the same thing happened. The scripture is full of that. But I just thought it was neat that uh, truth is revealed in something as simple as a little word like and. So now let's read verses 3 through 7. As I urged, urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And I just thought, boy, there's a lot of people today um, which make confident assertions about things they don't know that much about. And we need to be careful that we're not doing that. Strange doctrine. I just talked about strange doctrine. But strange doctrine has always threatened the church. And um, I think the dangerous thing about strange doctrine is that it's not just out there somewhere. You know, if, if, if we could say, you know, we could say evolution is a strange doctrine. But it's not generally taught in most churches. It's, uh, you know, in the schools or wherever. Strange doctrine is what's taught in churches. And so there's usually enough truth around it to make it somewhat believable. Uh, that's more dangerous, a lot more dangerous than something that's just out there somewhere. Myths and genealogies. There have always been myths. You know, we look at, uh, you know, some of the dark ages or wherever and the, the myths, the things that people believed, and we, you know, we kind of laugh at those people and how ignorant they were. But uh, I would say probably never in the history of mankind have has there been access to so many myths as uh, today. Um, you know, with internet capability and so on, there's, there's myths abound. Um, I know a, a plain dressing middle aged Christian lady who is convinced that Michelle Obama is a man. Um, other people believe the earth is flat. And, uh, you know, those myths are crazy enough, but if we start <laughs> mixing myths in with scripture, that's when it gets really dangerous. And speculation is not a, not a helpful thing. Uh, you know, it's okay to wonder about things, but if you spend too much time speculating uh, on things that maybe can't be known fully, uh, that's wasting our time in um, that sort of thing. Uh, we talked about end-time teaching before, and I think sometimes uh, end-time teaching can be a lot of speculation. There's some things that are obvious, you know, Jesus is going to win the battle, and he's going to rule and reign. 
Amen. Hallelujah. Um, but there's a lot of other things that are speculation. Let's not get bogged down in speculation. Speculation doesn't further the administration of God, which is by faith, like it says in verse 4. <clears throat> a word on genealogies. I'm not even quite sure what Paul was talking about here, the endless genealogies, what, what those were. <clears throat> but the, the Scripture has genealogies recorded. Can anybody quote to me the very first verse of the New Testament? Anybody? The very first verse. Okay. All right. Uh, King James, I used the word generations. Uh, my, my translation says, uses the word genealogy. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it goes on to list the genealogy. Now, certainly we wouldn't say, uh, you know, this is scripture. We wouldn't say that this is not valuable and important. I think they are important. The, the genealogies of Abraham, David, and Jesus are important because they're connected to the story of God and his people and the story of redemption. Now, our personal genealogies, they're not, they're not so important. You know, some people are very caught up in their personal genealogies. And as an adoptive parent myself, I find it a little bit interesting, but uh, not so much because um, I recognize that there are things stronger than blood. And uh, Mary's brother Dave, who's now passed away, was was very focused on genealogies. He was very good at it. He, you know, I think he went to the Library of Congress. And he, uh, he could tell you all sorts of things. But Mary made the statement one time, she wishes that Dave would be as interested in the future as he is in the past. And um, I think that's one of the dangers of being too caught up in genealogies. <clears throat> Verse 5 gives us what I think should be the motivation of goal and goal of every one of our services. Every one of our topics, every one of our sermons, every one of our Sunday schools. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If we have those three things, we'll have some valuable uh, time together. If any of these three are lacking, we may just have a fruitless, fruitless discussion, as it talks about in verse 6. Okay, let's read verses 8 through 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which I, with which I have been entrusted. 
Don't want to spend much time here, but I will say this about the law. I think many Christians, I think myself included, have kind of come up with the idea that the law was bad. You know, it was it was oppressive and it was complicated. And we're so glad that uh, the law is not over us today. And um, actually, it says the law wasn't bad. It says the law was good. It's just that uh, man couldn't keep it. And it seems like the law's main purpose was to show mankind their need of a Savior. Let's go on and read verses 12 to 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. One thing we can learn here is that God can put even the most unlikely people into service. If Paul was anything, he was a conservative, radicalized jihadist. I'd say that's what Paul was, wouldn't you agree? He was determined to keep his religion pure from the contamination of this new teaching that originated with Jesus and was being carried on by his disciples. One thing about Paul, he did it ignorantly, and I think sincerely, in unbelief. Is God more merciful to those that live out their lives because of ignorance of what's really true? <clears throat> I would say being in ignorance isn't necessarily a good excuse, but uh, it's certainly better than willful disobedience if we know the truth and just deliberately go against it. In verse 14, there's that beautiful word grace again. The grace of our Lord was more than abundant. That's grace. <clears throat> I think of the song that says, Yes, I know, yes, I know. Jesus' blood can make the vilest sinner clean. And we could go back to Paul's list a few verses back. No, the lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, the sinners, that whole long list. God's grace can do the same thing for any one of those people. <clears throat> In fact, uh, let me read a couple verses from, from 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's kind of the same list. But listen to the next verse. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. There's hope for the vilest sinner. <clears throat> After all, Jesus didn't come into the world for the righteous. Now that's in quotation marks, the righteous people. He came to save sinners like you and I. Okay, let's finish up with the last couple of verses. Verse 18. <clears throat> this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son. There's that my son again. In accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. <clears throat> Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight, and so should we. I've said this quite a few times before, but I think so often we, we want our lives to be a walk in the park. And... Uh, in a lot of ways, our peaceful American lives have been that. But really, a walk in the park isn't the reality of life. Life's a fight, and we better not forget it. And think of it this way. When you get up in the morning, before, we stick, before you stick your head out of your foxhole, Let's give a conscious thought that, hey, there, there's, a, there's a battle going on. There's a war going on in this world between good and evil. If we just nonchalantly walk out into the, to the, and think we're walking in the park, who knows what evil, what destruction will boil us over, will knock us down, will wound us. Well, we're not paying attention because we're, we're out for a walk in the park. <clears throat> so I would say before we stick our heads out of our foxholes, let's take time to put our armor on. <clears throat> the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, and so on. Let's gird on the sword of the Spirit. This may take a few minutes, but it'll be well worth it. This will be much better than unwittingly stepping out into the day and getting wounded by the enemy. And there's the possibility of not only getting wounded, there's the possibility of shipwreck. Paul says, some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, we'll talk more about apostasy. Paul addresses apostasy, apostasy in chapter 4. So we won't say that much about it today, but think of it this way. Um, 
It's not possible to have a shipwreck of your faith if at some point, if you didn't at some point have a faith that could be shipwrecked. Can you follow that, that reasoning? I think we need to, we need to be very much aware of the battle that's going on.